And we are now online for this session. Uh, the session is with an international finance institution expert. Uh, the expert is Naz, she's here with us today. So we're gonna kickstart this 20 minute session. But before we do that, Naz, thank you so much for being here with us today. Would you be so kind uh, and introduce yourself quickly? And from there, we'll kickstart the discussion. I think today we're gonna talk about resilience, but let's see where this discussion leads us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Roman, for this kind invitation to this podcast. Uh, I work with urban stakeholders to inspire change towards a resilient world. And in my most recent role, I work with International Finance Corporation, which is a member of the World Bank Group, on a program called Building Resilience Index, where we try to uh, inform the construction and building sector and help them give them a framework and a tool that will enable them to assess location specific risks of natural natural hazards and give them technical tools to build more resilient buildings and be able to disclose the value of resilience and the status of their building across the whole stakeholders within the building sector. Wow. Wow, that's a lot. So, so this is a super interesting topic. And I know now IFIs in general are putting more and more initiative and money and financing on those topics. Um, but just to make sure that the audience understand, and I also I understand, um, you're talking about the, re the resilience of the building themselves, meaning that can lead to, um, I guess, retrofitting or improvement of the building as a, as a shelf itself. Um, or you are also talking about uh, mapping resilience, okay? If a building is in a certain zone, you have, as you say, um, risk vis-a-vis -vis natural disaster, and you give to the building um, owners or, or different uh, stakeholders that are in different zones information about the risk vis-a-vis -vis the, the, the location. Or is it a mix of both? I would like to understand that better. It's a mix of both. So for the Building Resilience Index program specifically, what we're doing is, because most of the time, the biggest challenge that the developers face is that they don't have access to information about what are the climate or natural hazard risks that are affecting their location. Yeah, That uh, data is either dispersed or in the hands of the public sector or not. Um, they just don't have the technical capacity to really understand what all those likelihoods and probabilities really mean for a building. Yeah. And so providing them with information, whether that um, hazard exists there or not. And we look at it in a very binary way. It either exists or it doesn't exist. If it exists, you have to prepare for it no matter what the probability or likelihood of that risk is. Um, if, um, just to give a specific example, let's say a return period of an earthquake event in that location is 200 years, but it can happen tomorrow as well. It's a probability. And so are you gonna build a non-resilient building just because it, the earthquake of a significant degree may happen like 200 years from now? Or perhaps it could also happen tomorrow. Why risk it, right? So um, that to address that information asymmetry is part of our challenge. Yeah. But then 
the, the engineers are of course taught to follow the codes in the countries, but codes are usually just to uh, save lives. Yeah. And let's let's be honest, like across the world, not every building code is on par with the actual disasters uh, that are ha- occurring. And yeah. especially with climate change, we're seeing more severe and more intense and more frequent disasters. So the the codes are not able to catch up with or not enough seeds, yeah, or not sufficient to protect yeah. um, not just the people but the assets themselves. A big portion of the challenge is that the oftentimes the code is the minimum to save lives to get people out of the yeah. building, but then you lose the building. That it means an economic like uh, devastation in the sense that it takes resources from cities, it takes resources from governments, it takes resources from individuals and businesses to recover yeah. and reconstruct. And if we're talking about sustainable development, we can't let that happen because we need that uh, that resources to push further into the development goals that we have for those countries. Interesting, absolutely interesting. No, I totally understand that. Um, one of the question I have, I mean, I have a lot of question, including on data, but we may talk about it later, but I, I want to focus one second on, on the building and you, and you mentioned like, okay, it's twofold. It's the, the location vis-a-vis, uh, natural disaster related risk, but also the building itself. So building a sort of, uh, an assessment or where each building for developers or whoever, uh, where it stands at, um, I'm just thinking the value of this IFC building resilience work that you're doing as, as a tremendous, I mean, as a tremendous value, right, for developer, et cetera. So um, how does it work concretely? Like I'm a developer, uh, can I come to IFC and I ask for like a sort of a, I'm sorry to use that term, but like a quote for that. And like you, you do the, the report for me. So actually you can do all the work yourself in a way because uh, if you go to resilienceindex.org uh, we have a freely available app where you can sign up as a user and then uh, have your account and start creating your project for now we're only uh, have inf- data for the philippines but we're going to go global uh, very soon that's what our ambition is and so practically what you do is you select the location of the building that you're designing or constructing. And then the app runs an um, sort of a algorithm to tell you what hazards are applicable there for that you need to address. And then you're introduced and provided with a list of mitigation measures. These are engineering uh, and auditing related solutions that will help you to build um, more resilient building. And we categorize them under four um, big categories, wind, water, fire, and geoseismic. But we also include operational continuity measures as well, because what we want not just to save the building, but keep it operational post-disaster. And so with, and with your answers to how much of those that you integrate it to your building, you get a resil- what we call a resilience rating that ranges from R, C, B, A, and A+. So R 
is uh, not up to code or like informal um, or old code type of building, C would be a weak or um, like barely meeting the requirements sort of uh, standard th uh, that will align with. B is a good, um, good code that up, goes up to a good code. A is international best practice. So we're talking about earthquake codes of Japan. We're talking about um, of wind codes of Florida. Yeah. And then if A, A plus is in addition to being an A, you need to do operational continuity, which means um, you have like water um, supply, you have energy on, on site that would keep the building going at least its uh, core functions. Interesting. So at the end, there is a bit of for, for people to really understand uh, in, a, in a simple way. There is some uh, with the rating, there is some similarities with the energy efficiency rating of houses when someone goes on a market and the, the owner provides like the rating of the energy efficiency. That's the same, but at a larger scale throughout different pillars of resilience. Is that correct? That's true. I mean, fundamentally, what those labeling systems do is to communicate the value of efficiency. Mm -hmm. Uh, across the market stakeholders. So now that I know, like, if I'm going to buy a white goods, whether I'm going to choose a B rating or an A rating and what that would mean for my energy bill, it's similar. And in, this, in addition to that, we've also integrated cost, costs of these measures into our system so that from moving from a C-rated building to a B-rated building, a developer will be able to know how much extra it's going to cost them. And it's important to know that between that additional cost versus the loss you may sustain mm -hmm. uh, when you're at that lower rating is usually a, a big uh, decide. It should be a big deciding factor because it's usually better to implement resilience measures before a uh, disaster occurs than after it when it, the building is already damaged. And yeah. it's, it's an important factor even for like insurance and banks uh, if they're loaning as well, because nobody wants to like invest in stranded assets after all. Yeah, I, I was, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you pointed out because that was my next question on how it has an impact on all the, the, the stakeholders in the financing of those investments, right? Because it has an impact on insurance. It has impact on all the financing elements. Uh, you know, all the different like uh, promoters that come into the, that element. Um, but my question then, if I want to push a bit uh, and try to understand how it has an impact then on um, subsequent project or investment, as you said, it's a rating. So it informs me. Let's say I'm a developer. It informs me on on the risk there or the rating of my building, etc. And then, okay, I can see the mitigation measure through your, your tool, I understand online, et cetera. But what are the incentive for me to push that further, you know? Um, because a lot of our audience there are in uh, engineering firms or consultancy, so they may be involved with those type of projects. So again, going back to me, I'm the developer in that case. I've seen your rating. I'm in a not very good rating. I'm not happy. I see those mitigation measure. What's the next step? Uh, can I go back to IFC to get some support for financing of those additional mitigation measures to increase my rating and have a better project and convince my bank and my insurance to get a better uh, deal, et cetera, 
um, is there any scheme to to execute that improvement of my resilience uh, uh, rating and level? So the resilience rating is sort of a self-assessment. So as we, a developer can improve upon seeing the measures laid out in front of them. So it's sort of a guideline of sorts to uh, achieve better and better each time they build and design. As for how IFC is approaching it, uh, similar to our Green Buildings Edge program, we're building the Building Resilience program in a four-pronged, what we call a four-pronged approach, which is, it's not the, only the tool that we're developing, but we also, as IFC, we're doing investments. So we invest in the market through financial institutions. We can invest directly to projects or we can work with governmental stakeholders to improve codes and incentives in the market. Okay. For building resilience index, we're of course at the very early stages. It's it's a project that's almost two years old and okay. we just launched the tool last December. But wow. if I were to give an example from our edge program, it had immense success in Colombia market, Colombia market simply because that four-pronged approach worked. And because we have a tool uh, that provided um, finance-linked um, green building assessment yeah. for the market that certifies buildings, then the government was put through a green building code that was supported with tax incentives. Oh. And then there was a bank and uh, other financial institutions that provided green bonds and other financial yeah. tools. And then I, IFC was also able to invest directly to certain projects. The whole ecosystem was complete. And now in Colombia, 20% of all new buildings are built green. Wow. In, and this is within wow. four years. Wow. This is incredible. Wow. So we're using those lessons learned, hoping to at least implement those lessons learned into the building resilience index as well. Yeah, this is, I mean, you nailed it. This is exactly what I what I wanted to know about the ecosystem and how from data and an index that gives you a sort of a stamp yeah. from IFC to say you are there, it gives a sort of a quality insurance. It trickles down throughout the entire chain to yes. the point because when you hear now with all those initiatives, you know, net zero in the UK, mm -hmm. um, green agenda in the EU or the World Bank, etc. I hear a lot of banks, private banks, different financial institutions, they all want to have a green agenda. So they're looking for opportunities like this one to then, you know, finance some project and developers come to them. They need to come to them with something that shows that there is a net zero effects or even like, you know, negative carbon effect, etc. So... Yeah. This is the sort of initiative that, you know, from a rating and, and good data has, has a massive impact. As you mentioned, Colombia, I didn't okay. know those numbers. This is fascinating. And if I may add another thing, um, and another key element of the whole program is a skills development and training program that we, um, that we partnered with local uh, chambers and engineering groups, because unless the higher education and continuous education in, in certain expertise mm -hmm. is not like embedded within this ecosystem, we won't have enough people to work on green buildings. And that it needs to become intrinsic. It needs yeah. to become 
common practice to build green, to build resilience. And that could only be done through good skills and jobs training uh, that we can provide. No, that, that makes sense. The, this point of view, I haven't thought about it, but that makes sense because you can't expect IFC to intervene everywhere. You need to build that capacity and that awareness. So going back then to that, and I want to take the Istanbul. I know you're calling uh, today from Istanbul, right? Yes. How, how is, I mean, how is that capacity and that awareness in Istanbul? I know there are a few um, Istanbul vision, I think 2050, um, I don't know exactly if it's for a more inclusive Istanbul or more green Istanbul, but how's the, and I understand this program of yours is not limited to Istanbul or to uh, uh, Turkey, far from that, you mentioned Colombia, but how's that ecosystem in Turkey, which again, as a, as a country that has a lot of opportunities and is changing a lot right now, but can you tell us a bit more about that skill set and how the awareness vis-a-vis -vis resilience and world building is changing or not changing in, in Turkey and Istanbul? Ooh, uh, <laughs> that's sort of a pain point that you're mentioning, I guess. So I would say we in Istanbul and in Turkey in general, uh, we may have be on the verge of missing a big opportunity because 95% of the country is an earthquake zone. And with newer earthquake regulations and uh, subsequent urban renewal projects that pretty much, um, uh, for the lack of a better word, like raised and reconstructed entire neighborhoods, sometimes in as a holistic district, sometimes one by one by buildings. I think we sort of missed an opportunity to actually integrate climate hazards uh, into the equation as well as sustainability agenda. Okay. And this was simply because that sort of skills training and understanding across the construction sector and across public sector was not there. Mm. And we just created like we created densities within the city that became unsustainable for or posed greater risks for the infrastructure of the city when a climate hazard occurs. So um, it pains me a little bit. Um, there's always, so like the current the, the municipality mayorship, they're working towards more resilience there. Um, and I think the bigger portion of, because I was involved with the climate action plan for Istanbul in okay. 2018, um, we, it was a big list of, things that could be done in Istanbul by the experts in the city and across Turkey, to be honest. But currently what's happening is what they actually have a Istanbul climate platform where we have everyone from youth to senior experts advising the municipality on how to improve certain uh, progresses and strategies to be more inclusive, and make sure that there's accountability and nothing gets missed out. And I'm on the uh, climate adaptation and justice uh, work group there. And I, I just love it because uh, we have a high school uh, student as our moderator. Oh, nice. And so we have, we have youth representation, we have yeah. expert representation, we have 
uh, NGO representations. And I, I, I like it because it, it, it creates the diversity that we need um, to really guide uh, resilience and sustainability agendas in the cities. This is this is massive. I mean, I understand you say it's a pain point and a bottleneck, but it's also improvement, right? Because and and with the inclusion of youth, you're building the next generation of you know decision maker and citizens uh, in Turkey and being more aware of those of those very important topic, uh, not only for the country but you know for the entire world ecosystem. So very positive as well, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, cities have a lot to do because. Fundamentally, although the emissions are a big portion of uh, the discussion, what it comes down to is the climate change impacts are felt at the local level. So it's really up to the city governments and local stakeholders to um, figure out ways to address it. Yeah, definitely. It echoes a lot, you know, with we had a session with... uh, a World Bank expert on urban planning. Um, and we're talking about this urban-rural divide. And she was correlating uh, poverty ratio, uh, carbon footprint, and cities, and showing that, yes, there are relationship between uh, rural and urban, but they had to focus a lot on the urban area because of emission and the impact of lifting those emissions uh, towards reduction of poverty. So that very much echoes what you're saying, uh, because again, your index, yes, it's it's the entire land for the mapping of the hazard. The building can be anywhere, but again, you see that concentration. And so the bulk of the effort, I guess, again, is the cities, policies, is cities that have to put in place those tax incentive and all the things you mentioned, because they are the really the, the, the driver of that change and that transformation. Absolutely. And to be honest, the... It's challenging for cities, and I've recently created a, a local uh, authorities guideline for Turkey uh, in a project with UNDP Turkey on enhancing adaptation action uh, in in Turkey. And the the standard approach it should be to actually first figure out what the climate hazards affecting a city is, and then cross-cutting it with the vulnerabilities of people, communities, sectors, and all sorts of like spatial arrangements with uh, distribution within the city, and then prioritize. Oftentimes, unfortunately, there are political, ideological discussions that fall under uh, these decisions and um, climate just like addressing climate justice within that framework um, may be a little tough. Um, but we need to, before we go into the action plans, we need to understand the, uh, holistically what the vulnerabilities of the city is. And then what we're doing at building scale is just like one portion of it. Yeah. But of course, it's, it's important because unless we protect livelihoods and lives, um, we won't like we won't have anyone to work towards the resilience as well. One hundred percent. Nas, thank you so much. Uh, fascinating topic. Uh, I know we we're gonna have another hour or more next time to continue that discussion. For the time being, this is the end of our session. Thank you so much again for being with us. That was fascinating, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you.